Good morning, CCV. My name is Susan Christ, and I'm on the CCV Church Council. Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation 1 and 2. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches in Asia. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear that you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. As Johnny said, my name is Dean Miller, and I'm a longtime friend of this church. It always feels a little bit like just coming down the road to family here when I drive down to Vienna. So I'm here in the Cursina World Headquarters living room for your church, and so glad to be with you. If you have a Bible and can turn to Revelation 2, that'd be great. Um, during this series, you guys are going through the whole book of Revelation, and our church is going through these letters to the seven churches that Johnny mentioned. It's the easiest series you'll ever have to find where we are. Go to the back of your Bible and turn to Revelation 2. And as you do that, I want you to think about someone you may... Um, who you admired, who was sort of a mentor or coach, a friend who really came alongside you and encouraged you when you were in a difficult time. They let you know that they saw how you were working hard in a place where you were suffering. Some of you know, uh, I've mentioned when I've been with you before that for several years I spent um, time with Apple and sales and one of my managers, one of the years I was there was just a really hard year. If you've done sales, you know there's years you just have to keep plugging away, you're furrowing the ground and hoping the seeds you plant will bear fruit. And about two-thirds, three-quarters into that sales year, my manager at the time, a guy named James, pulled me aside and said, hey, I just want you to know that I see the hard work you're doing. You are showing up. You're working hard. It hasn't borne the kind of fruit that other years might have or that you might have hoped for. But I just want you to know I see that, and I am really glad and thankful for your hard work. And that meant the world to me because I felt like that he knows, James is saying, I see the work you're doing. I see that it's suffering and hard and that you're at it still. You're not quitting. Um, this morning, we're going to look at Jesus give that kind of instruction and encouragement to one of the churches. Again, I'm going to give a brief overview of a really significant and well-known part of Revelation, these letters to the seven churches, and then I'm going to focus a little bit on one specific church and what Jesus is saying. As we come to Revelation, remember the filters that you, we are encouraging you to put on. I know Johnny introduced the book some last week, and um, our church went and we said we're going to put on some glasses every week we're together to remind us just what kind of book this is, because Revelation is a bit one of a kind in the Bible. What we said last week as a church was, remember, Revelation is a poem. It's more like a movie, so you've got flashbacks side stories. It's not always chronological, and it speaks in a lot of images and metaphors, not in literal things as much as images and metaphors. It's a poem that has deep theological power, and it's engaging us artistically with our imagination and then as well with our intellect, but it isn't just an intellectual exercise. You're getting pulled into this story. 
it's stressing that that's more going on than meets the eye. What you and I see is not the only world we're in. And it's stressing that what we don't see is actually more real than what we see. That's a weird thing. It's hard to get your brain around. But it's saying the world going on, the seen and the unseen, what is unseen that God sees is more real than what you and I see. That's not a normal way for us to think. Then our church stressed again last week that it's a book for us in the middle. So we see in the beginning of Revelation or beginning of the Bible in Genesis, God saying creation is good. And then we see at the end of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, God bringing a new heaven and a new earth. And what Revelation is doing is inviting you and I imaginally to think about and understand what happens in between those two spaces. You and I are living in the middle, and we might expect, because it's good and God's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth, that things are going to be great. You and I are going to have, you're going to drive down Main Street in Vienna and never have a red light, which as you and I know is impossible. What instead we're being encouraged to do is to live faithfully alive to Jesus in the middle. And we're, the way we're being encouraged to do that is again through this poem. And we're being told in the middle is a battle, and it's a battle between the lamb and the dragon for the throne, right? So again, this book that we're reading, our church is reading as well. I'd encourage you to be on the call with Paul Spilsbury Wednesday, Wednesday night. It's saying, hey, guess what? We're in a battle and the battle is for who's going to be worshiped on the throne. Is it going to be the dragon, the devil, or is it going to be Jesus? Now this book, this letter we've been given, it's the revelation of Jesus to John. And John is a pastor. He's writing and sending this book and these letters to people he loves and knows in the western part of Asia, what we now consider Western Turkey. And John is writing from exile. It's one of the phrases you're using here at Christ Church Vienna about the series. John's writing from the island of Patmos, which is about 40 miles off the coast of Turkey. It's basically a quarry. It's a prison exile island. It's what they do. They'd send you, and he's, be, he's sent there because as he lives in the battle, the Roman world is inviting John to worship Caesar, Domitian, the empire emperor at this time had created a way for folks to say or demand to say hey you've got to call me lord and god and so john of course cannot do that because jesus is his lord and god and he's writing letters to these same churches in the same place he was in to say stay faithful to god as you feel this same kind of pressure and again we're going to see specific words from jesus to those churches this morning so again please turn to revelation 2 if you haven't already Revelation 2 and 3 are seven churches to, in seven cities with each given specific letters. Seven letters to seven churches in seven cities. Each situation is a little different. It'd be like if I wrote a letter to seven people or families here at CCV. Each of those would be a little different because you're different people. These letters are written in an encyclical. They're for the circular road that bound together the most populous, wealthy, an influential part of this province. So these are sort of the main seven roads. It'd be like writing letters for around the beltway. There are specific letters, again, to specific situations. And again, there's seven, which means something. Why seven? Why not three or six or 27? Because seven in the Bible is the number we get for completeness and wholeness. If you read, as you read Revelation, since you guys are doing the whole book, you're going to see sevens everywhere. There are seven spirits in chapter 4, which really are just saying the fullness of the Holy Spirit. There's seven eyes on the Lamb. Does Jesus have seven eyes? No, it's saying Jesus has the fullest, deepest insight into what's going on in the world and again into these seven churches. So these seven letters are to represent letters to the entire church community around the world at that time and this time. 
at any given time in the world, in Northern Virginia, in our diocese, there are churches wrestling with the seven things annotated here. If you want to know how does the church struggle, how do they live in the world in the in-between, read all seven letters and you'll see all the seven ways that most often we struggle. You could also drill down from churches to individuals. I would say at any given time, there are individuals in our churches wrestling with the seven things represented in these letters. And what Jesus is doing is training his people up. One way to look at these seven letters is their training material. Last night at our house, we were framing, putting together a new bed frame for my wife and I. And I had my kids help me do that because I want them. I kept looking at my son, my high school son, and saying, one day you're going to be in an off-campus apartment, and I want you to know how to put together something from Ikea. So I had him trained. I pulled him in and said, okay, tonight we're learning how to put a bed together. And it's like Jesus is coming to this churches and saying, here's the seven things that I fundamentally want you to know how to do and live and be. I'm going to train you how to love, how to suffer, how to tell the truth, how to be holy, how to be authentic, how to be on mission, and how to worship. Those are the themes of the letters and what Jesus is stressing to them. The Greek word here is training, padeia. So let's look at one particular letter, the letter to the church in Smyrna, which is modern-day Izmir. What should we know about this city itself? City, Smyrna was considered the loveliest of these seven cities. It's called the Flower of Asia. It's a beautiful city. It's the birthplace of the philosopher Homer. It's probably most uh, what it's known for at this point in time. And it had two strong themes of identity. One was they saw themselves as a resurrected city. The city had been destroyed in the 6th century in yet another series of battles as armies would move across Western Asia. And then it had been rebuilt, particularly by Rome, in the 3rd century. So they had this sense that we are resurrected. Second, it had a sense is that not only are we resurrected, but we are a deeply Roman city. They're wholeheartedly committed to being Roman, patriots for Rome. And there's all these particular ways they represent that, represent that particularly, specifically, temples and places of worship. So there's, uh, in the second century, they built a temple to Rome as a goddess. So there's this temple to Dia Roma. In the 23rd, uh, or excuse me, in AD 23, they built a temple to Caesar Augustus. In AD 25, just two years later, they won a competition with seven other cities to build a new temple to Emperor Tiberius. And they got so excited about that that they didn't just build a temple to him. They built one for his wife and for the Roman Senate. So they say, we are resurrected and we are Roman. What does Jesus say to this city in his letter? His typical address stresses that he's among the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands are the churches. What he's telling us is, I'm not up above. I'm down in it with you. I see you and I know you. And his pattern of the addresses is to have an affirmation and a warning and a promise. Okay, an affirmation, a warning, and a promise. So Jesus first speaks his affirmation to this church in the city that sees itself as in a, a resurrected city in a Roman city. And what does Jesus stress? He is writing, he who is from the first and the last, and he who is risen from the dead. What he's telling them is, I see where you live, Smyrna, and I need to want to remind you that I know what resurrection means. You're not just in a resurrected city. You actually belong to the resurrected Son of God. I again am risen from the dead. And then he's saying to them, I know that you are in a place where you're surrounded by images and metaphors that tell you that Rome is the story. 
but I am he who is from the first and the last. Again, I am he who is from the beginning and the end. As you live in the middle, I bracket history. So it's very subtle at the beginning of this letter. And again, it's a, a poem. If you don't catch this, you'll still catch meaning, but there's some significant, powerful things Jesus is saying before he even gets to his specifics for this city. Now, this church in this beautiful city is in a hard time, and yet they are thriving. This is one of the two churches that's not given a warning. I mentioned the pattern, address, warning, promise. If you read through Smyrna, you'll see, gosh, they don't really get a warning, but they do get an exhortation. And the exhortation is testing is on its way. Jesus says, I see and know you're in difficult times and that they're going to increase. And the Greek here is really that you're going to get crushing pressure. That what's going to happen, testing, tribulation, affliction, the image is really crushing pressure is coming. Jesus understands what that's like, right? He was crushed literally, spiritually, physically when he was on earth. And he's saying to them, I know what's coming. I experienced it with you. I'm with you now, and I want you to make it. Don't give up. Now, why are they experiencing pressure? The other churches get exhortations and warnings, but it's because they need discipline. This church doesn't need discipline. They're doing great. This is the kind of pressure, for those of you who are reading Daryl Johnson, one of the books Johnny and I are reading on Revelation, Daryl says, this is the kind of pressure experienced when the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdom of human beings in rebellion against God. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of human beings in rebellion against God, there's going to be pressure. There's always going to be pressure. There always has been, there always is, and there always will be. Two kingdoms at war, the dragon and the lamb. The Scottish theologian Thomas Torrance says this about this passage. The church cannot be a true church without causing trouble. The church cannot be a true church without causing trouble. That's what's going on. The church in Smyrna is causing trouble by their faithfulness to Jesus, and they're suffering for it. How are they suffering and how are they going to suffer? Four ways we can see here. First, they're suffering socially. Their friends are distancing themselves from them, and their families are distancing themselves from them. Some of the people in this church are Gentiles, but some are Jews, and they have Jewish families and people who they used to worship with in the synagogues. Now, Jews in Rome had a worship exception. They didn't have to call Domitian Lord and God. But people are looking at these Christians, and they're often seen as just sort of an extension of the Jewish synagogue. And they're saying, wait, we thought the Jews were patriots. We thought they upheld Rome, that they saw Rome as the ultimate allegiance. They have an exception. The Jews are saying, wait, they don't have the exception. Christians who are causing trouble, you should get them. The way to throw the attention from themselves in the Jewish community is to point to the Christians and go, no, they are traitors to Rome. You should go and oppress them. That's some of what's happening. So the church is suffering socially. It's also suffering financially. They're excluded from the marketplace. People won't buy from them. People won't sell to them. And people won't hire them. Okay, so the church is financially poor. It's undergoing poverty because they're being faithful to Jesus. It's not hard in that space to imagine sort of an easy way out, is it? To someone to say, like you could see your Jewish brother not wanting you to struggle, saying, hey, just in your heart, Keep your heart close to Jesus, but just throw the incense at the temple of Domitian to him and say, he's Lord and God. Don't really mean it. But like John on Patmos, like Jesus here, they're looking at each other saying, no, we won't do that no matter the cost. 
So they're suffering socially, financially. They're also suffering spiritually, just doubt, loneliness, anxiety. They're under true spiritual attack. One way to think of it again is they're in the sights of the dragon. The dragon has them lined up and he's bringing his full fire to bear on them. And lastly, Jesus says they're about to suffer physically. Many of them are going to be imprisoned and many of them will suffer even unto death, just like he did. It's a pretty wide-ranging set of sufferings, isn't it? Socially, financially, spiritually, and of course, physically. Put yourself for a second in their shoes. Would this exhortation from Jesus, many of us have said, we'd love to hear Jesus speak audibly to us. I bet the church in Smyrna wanted to hear. Here's John hearing audibly a message to give to people he dearly loves that's this heavy. It would be hard for me to hear this exhortation. What do you wish Jesus had said to them? This is again from Daryl Johnson. I know what I wish he had said. I know your pressure and I'm now going to lift it. My disciples should not have to be subject to difficulty and danger. That's what I'd love to hear Jesus say. Instead, what Jesus says is, I know your pressure. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. I am with you in it. Be faithful unto death. Now, can you look around the world we live in and feel this same sort of crushing pressure? My guess is if you are a Jesus lover and you have called him your Lord and Savior, that you can feel that same sort of crushing pressure that's described here. If you're a teenager or a college student seeking to be faithful to Jesus, I bet you know that kind of pressure. If you're a parent seeking to faithfully fulfill your God-given responsibilities, I bet you're feeling this kind of pressure. If you're a single person seeking to honor God in the midst of loneliness, I bet again you're feeling this kind of crushing pressure. Maybe you're a salesperson, like I was at Apple, and you feel the pressure to lie to reach a number. Again, crushing pressure. Maybe you're just a neighbor on your street here in Vienna or Northern Virginia, and you're fighting against demonizing another neighbor or a friend or a family member who disagrees with you or a colleague at work who seems to only be able to hold two thoughts in their head at the same time. Maybe, like Johnny and I who are here in this room, maybe you're a teacher or a pastor and you're trying to help people have their deepest allegiance be to Jesus and not to Rome, and you're experiencing pressure. I was in a series of conversations with pastors this week that actually span a little bit of the continent. And what you hear again and again, people who are leading great, Jesus-loving, godly churches are taking enormous flack and pressure for calling people to Jesus over any sort of political system in our country or around the world. Again, pressure. What's it mean? Here is the truth. The more faithful you and I to having our ultimate allegiance to Jesus and the Lamb, the greater the pressure is going to be. The more trouble we cause in the world on behalf of Jesus which is what we're supposed to do, the greater the pressure is going to be. In the story, you and I are in, from creation to the new heaven and new earth. Again, it's a battle. And Jesus needs people trained up for the battle. Now, the devil loves to press us and help us suffer the ways I listed, the four ways going on in Smyrna. And he uses some tactics here. And if you read through the seven letters, you can pull these tactics out. This is from John Stott. And they're so great. And I, I wasn't quite sure where to put it in the sermon. I just knew you needed to hear it. So it's going here. Here's the way Stott lists. And I'm going to add one. Because again, this will give you insight into how you're tempted. 
okay? One of the devil's tactics here is physical, physical persecution. And you can see around the world, Johnny prayed for the global church. We have brothers and sisters around the world. That's the tactic the devil is using. Or he might bring intellectual tactics, right? To call into question what we believe to be true. Heresy is the classic word for that. That, I think, is probably more the way our country often leans that way in the next way I'll mention. Heresy. So um, physical tactics, intellectual tactics, or moral tactics, what we call sub-Christian standards. An invitation to live with your body in a way that doesn't honor the Lord. You can look. The next couple letters are going to look at how um, the churches in Revelation are being tempted morally. Two of the churches particularly are stressed for the ways they're being engaged to live sexually. And I would add to Stott, as bold as it is to add to John Stott, over physical, intellectual, moral, I would add communal, because I think this is particularly happening right now. The devil will either tear away your community or invite you to leave your community for another one where there's less pressure in the first three things, physical, intellectual, and moral. He's going to say, you don't want to be alone. You don't want to be sad. You don't want to be ostracized or seen as a weirdo. You want less pressure? Then come go with me. But Jesus doesn't say, no suffering for my people, because that's not true, because it's not a witness to the world, and it's something he allows to purify us. And he doesn't abandon us in it. He gives the church in Smyrna and us four ways, four helps in how we make it when we suffer. How do we survive and thrive? Here are those four ways. First, Jesus reminds us that suffering only comes when we are getting closer to him. Many of us during Lent are saying, Lord, I just want to get close to you without realizing, oh, what I'm probably asking is I might have a little more suffering. We would encourage you as Christians, get as close to Jesus as you possibly can. But know that that means this trouble is going to come. But know, too, that that means you're alive. It's the live fish that swim upstream against the current. If you're not getting closer to Jesus, not going upstream against the world, you'll suddenly realize that's when you're dead. So know that if you're experiencing suffering or testing in the ways we've described, it's a good sign. It means you're getting closer to Jesus. Second, remember Jesus' word here, test. Test. Jesus allows it, which means he thinks periodic pressure is good for us. Periodic pressure is good for us. Again, he's like a good coach or tutor or trainer. You want to be stronger. A good physical fitness coach would make you lift more weight than you can lift today. So it's a test. He's letting it happen to help you and I get stronger. Third, again, Jesus has final authority. He's over the first and the last. You're going to complete this trial, but Jesus is in control. Again, the story is not about Rome. It's about Jesus. Fourth and last, Jesus makes a promise in this letter to the conqueror. And every letter, all seven, have a promise to those who conquer. And the, the, the gift, the joy that they get is always something connected to eternal life. Here it's the crown of life. Smyrna was known for having athletic games. And like in other cities in Rome, you'd get a wreath, a crown, if you won an event. What Jesus is saying is for those of you in Smyrna who withstand the test, yes, even unto physical death, and hold fast to me, you will receive eternal life, the crown of life. Everyone you know will experience the first death, our physical death. What Jesus is saying is here is hold fast and you will not experience the second death, 
when we come to judgment, which will be covered in the book of Revelation as you go through this series. This is a heavy letter, but it's also a gift because Jesus is giving you and I a way to thrive when we feel that kind of pressure. And this week in the church calendar, there's actually a lovely little reminder of just what it meant to be a part of Smyrna. You know, the only city that's still thriving in Turkey of the seven is Smyrna. It's Izmir, as I mentioned before. And it's the only place where there's still the church. Now they're under persecution. There have been ebbs and flows, but there are still lots of churches in Izmir where you could go worship God. Most of those would be Greek or Eastern Orthodox. And this past Tuesday, for those of us who follow the church calendar, there was a particular feast day and a saint, a martyr that we celebrate. He's a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was murdered in the second century BC, about 70 years after this letter. He was 86 years old, and he was encouraged to call Caesar his Lord and God. And he said, you know, I'm not going to do that. 80 and six years, Jesus has been my king, and he's never done me wrong. So why would I do wrong to him now? Well, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. So this letter from John raised him up, and he held fast. And his story has been passed down to us for 18 centuries, so you and I might hold fast as well. Let's pray. Dear God, it's one thing to study this book, and it's another thing to seek how to live out what Smyrna was doing there. It does give me sober thoughts to think about physical suffering and death and what that means for my brothers and sisters around the world, even this morning. We experience probably more often intellectual and moral tactics of the devil, but we do offer up each other. We pray that we would be willing to suffer for you and to cause a little trouble this week by loving our neighbors, by loving you, by having the courage to stand up for what is true and right, by seeking the lost. Lord, anoint us that we might be your people, even when it's hard. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.